Blog Talk Radio. You are listening to the Four Persons Network. To learn more about what we do, go to our show page at thefourpersons.com and our blog site at thefourpersons.net. Tonight's show is The Tangled Web with Deb Rojas. With the help of our Mother Mary, we seek to untangle the knots we find and sometimes cause in our own lives. If you have a comment or question, drop it in the show chat room or call in at 515-602-9655. That number again is 515-602-9655. And now, let's welcome Deb Rojas. with Deb in uh, the Philadelphia area, but as you heard, if you want to call in, please call in. It's 515-602-9655. Tonight, we're going to talk about uh, a number of things, but first of all, Easter. What's your favorite memory of Easter, Deb? My favorite? Hmm. I have to say, the Gloria was pretty fantastic this year. Um... The church was completely dark, as in all of the lights were out. And um, when the the Easter candle came in, um, the light of Christ was present. Uh, the exultant was still done by candlelight. So we were waiting very patiently for um, for the Gloria, where all the lights could come on. So what's the exultant? What's the exultant? It's what the priest sings that just tells the story of creation, and uh, and uh, and and how Christ is really the light of the world. So we're rejoicing. We're rejoicing that Easter's here. Cool. Christ is he's he's present with us. Um, but what was really cool is we sang Secret Cherubus by candlelight, and um, and I didn't screw it up. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. Right More memorized than I realized. <laughs> and then um and then the uh when we got to the Gloria and Father did Gloria in Exhaustio there was this huge organ interlude. And hmm. as the altar was being lit, the organ just got bigger and bigger and bigger. I wish you guys could see my arms because they're just expanding the <laughs> the sound of the organ. Um so it was just really climactic, and then all of the lights went on, and at the same time, all the bells are ringing, and it was just this incredibly joyful moment. And then we broke out into the um, Misa Pape Martelli um, mass setting, which is just an absolutely glorious polyphonic mass setting. 
Mm. And um, it was really, really special. Very joyful. Well, uh, sounds sounds fantastic. Um, uh, we had a, a very beautiful service as well. Um, as you know, I am critical of Novus Ordo, the new mass, which has been around since 72. Do you know? Something like that. Uh, 62 is that. Is it 62 the... Um, the council. Was that, yeah, the council. Yeah. It, just, it wasn't the council. It was the new mass, which came in later. Yeah. And um, uh, it's valid. I'm not saying that. But it's awfully plain, and it's more like a church service rather than the mass. Um, but at times when you have a good man like we have, uh, he tries to make it really uh, reverent and to bring back some of the um, the things that lift the soul towards heaven, right? Mm-hmm. So the Vigil Mass is a great example of that when we had the candles and uh, he chanted a lot of the, what do you call it again, Deb? Exalted. The, uh, E-X-U-L-T-E-T, Exalted. Oh, Exalted, okay. <laughs> exalted. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we're listening, but anyway, so uh, yeah, that uh, we don't we don't have the same facilities as you have. We are a simple country parish with a lot of retired people, but it was um, quite beautiful with the candles and everything. But the other thing was we had a whole family coming to the church this Easter. Um, wow. From the mother, father's already in the church, mm. but all the kids, you know, stair-step kids mm. all the way down to a really small girl. And mm. it was really beautiful to have them all be baptized. Mm. And then a little, um, little Chica was uh, uh, anointed with oil. Mm-hmm. And uh, the rest of them were confirmed. So that was like a really, of course, it's a, a beautiful part too. Um, but I have another question for you. What is your favorite memory from days gone by when you were a kid or any time? What's your favorite Easter memory? Gian, you got anything? Yeah, let's ask Gian that. Um, just, just family. I mean, every, mm-hmm. every Easter since I can remember, we uh, we've spent with my mom's side of the family. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, you know, for a while it was you know my my maternal grandparents who hosted at their house in Trevos outside of Philadelphia. That's, that's where I'm from, county area outside of Philadelphia. Um, and uh, so it was there for a number of years, and it's just it was just full of life. It was vibrant. There's mm-hmm. it was it was very just a lot of love, you know, mm-hmm. and my, my grandma was kind of the, the fuel of that, you know, she was very caring and passionate and, and she, um, she kind of organized everything and, mm-hmm. and brought the whole family together. Mm-hmm. I would uh-huh. say, and it kind of centered around her. Of course, my grandfather was, um, you know, very important and relevant, but he was kind of much quieter, uh, a little less social, um, you know, uh, but he enjoyed the food. More, kind of more shy. Um, <laughs> 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 Certainly, everyone, everyone enjoyed the food. 
Um, so we've, we've carried that tradition on. Both of those uh, people have passed. Um, but now my parents are hosting most years. Sometimes they're flipping between, you know, a different cousin and my parents. But my parents are hosting. Mm-hmm. So it's really nice to just be able to have people over at our house. It's, mm-hmm. it's not my house anymore, but it's the house I grew up in. So it's, uh, it's kind of like my house. Yeah. Do you have uh, do you have any good food to eat? Um, we don't really have any like traditions or like signature dishes for Easter. Um, <laughs> so no, not not really. No. <laughs> what about chocolate? Chocolate. Chocolate. <laughs> chocolate. <laughs> uh, I mean, there's chocolate. Yeah, there's chocolate, but you know, yeah, it's. it's I wouldn't say it's it's a it's always there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. We like chocolate year round, so we don't like to limit it to just the Easter chocolate. However, after the, <laughs> after the fast, there's something about bringing out all the candy after the Lenten fast. Mm. The candy and the chocolate and the dessert that that kind of make it more of a a special celebration. I think that's really important because, um, I don't know about you guys, when I was a kid, we had very few treats. You know, one thing, we were really poor, so there just wasn't money to have a whole lot of special stuff, like Mm -hmm. soda. You say soda? Mm Mm-mm. No, you you got it. No, I was just, I didn't say anything. I was just thinking that I was, we didn't even have soda, maybe once a week on Friday nights with pizza, but it was like... So now it's like everywhere and people have it every single day and mm-hmm. that's fine, whatever. But when we were kids, like once a month would have been more like it. I mean, we never had anything like that. Hmm. So when it was a big holiday like Easter and we had all this candy, it was like amazing, you know, mm-hmm. holy cow. Mm-hmm. Now it's like jelly beans, like, ah, oh, there's nothing really good to eat. I guess I'll eat a jelly bean. <laughs> but when I was a kid, I mean, those jelly beans were like, oh, wow, it was, it was just so amazing. But I think uh, one of the great things for me about becoming a Catholic was that uh, explosion of joy at Easter, you know, mm-hmm. because before there's very little difference. You know, you have chocolate as you go along. And then Easter, here's a bunch more chocolate. Ah, okay. And then the next day back to normal. Instead of, we kind of get to create the real, one of the real joys of having a poor childhood. You know, the great thing about being really poor as you come up is that the treats are so treaty. You know, it's so, <laughs> you know, it's hard. Mm-hmm. What were you going to say, Dion? I said that's a good, that's a good point. Yeah, you appreciate and savor the treats. Right. I guess that's probably not what the fathers of the church were thinking when they um, instituted <laughs> Lent. <laughs> we need to make <laughs> we need to make Easter even more treaty for people. They're not enjoying it like they could. But if you think about it, it's a time of year seasonally where there's less on which to feast in nature. Mm-hmm. You know, it's more of a barren time coming out of winter right. through spring, you know. So it's. Um, I always thought it was really awesome that the flowers started to bloom around Easter. It was like the earth was reminding everybody that the resurrection was expected, yeah. guaranteed even, guaranteed. <laughs> it would. It would happen. <laughs> yeah. What are you gonna say, Gia? Um. 
Well, I was just thinking um, the um, you know what popped out of my head. I don't, oh, know. What I don't know. <laughs> don't matter. Um, uh, but um, something Deb said sparked me too, and now you've uh, you've done it to me, Gianna. I can't remember what I was going to say either. Wow, but, it's contagious. Let's make it happen to Deb. So you guys are safe. <laughs> so Deb, what's the idea? Can you give us a favorite childhood memory? Well, you know what's funny? Easter? I don't really have any. Easter childhood memories, um, except that there was one woman in my church growing up. So uh, my dad was a Baptist pastor when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. And um, and so people would naturally, like, give our family things for holidays. And she would make these chocolate-covered peanut butter eggs in a massive foil pan with, like, the little green baked grass and um, peaks. Mm-hmm. And then there would be little jelly beans hidden in the grass too. But mm-hmm. she would the, the the peanut butter eggs were homemade, and so that was always like we looked forward to it. We called her Grandma Knox. We we looked forward to her Easter eggs every year, and all you know, I, I just always think of that with fondness. Um, but I don't really have many Easter memories because Protestants look at every Sunday as Resurrection Sunday, and which it is which we as Catholics also do. We have a mini triduum every Friday, mm-hmm. Saturday, Sunday. Right. Um, but we just, we also have a major triduum every year. Right. And so um, in which we more profoundly and solemnly remember and celebrate the um, the passion, the burial, the, the, the death, and the resurrection of Christ. So... Um, Kind of interesting. Looking, yeah, looking sounds at like it. it's a bit more of a big deal for for Catholics. Yeah. Oh, definitely, definitely. Hmm. What Easter or Sunday, Yeah. Easter. I was thinking the Easter. You know, the 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 Easter Triduum, if you will, maybe capital capital T, mm-hmm. you know, as opposed to the one every every mm-hmm. week, which is not to be discounted by any means. Um, right. Right. Um, you know, I don't think. Um, I think it's sometimes it's a struggle for us to enter into that. You know, certainly the, the reminders there every Sunday of mm-hmm. the Paschal mystery and of the resurrection, you know, in particular. And um, we have the historical fasting on Fridays, every Friday, historically. Historically. Right. Historically. Historically. <laughs> yeah. And, I mean, that's something I picked up a few years ago. Um, and I, I do that now. Uh, I fast every Friday. But um, I, it doesn't seem to be a common discipline in the church anymore. Um, so there is kind of a lack of entering into that weekly Paschal mystery. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And I was uh, kind of half joking, laughing about making Easter more treaty, but it really is like a, a fact of human nature, right? That it's really good for us to go through Lent. And I think mm-hmm. it's good to go through the little Lent once a week. A little fast. Right. So when you, right. When you think about why Easter is more treaty, to use your made-up word, um, <laughs> um, <laughs> you can chant that if you like. Um, you know, it is more treaty because the whole season is more fasty. <laughs> yeah, that's true. We need more fastiness in our lives, I think. 
yeah. yeah. It doesn't need to be like a misery, but it needs. <laughs> it needs <laughs> it's really good for you to uh, to fast a little bit. Um, some, I mean, I've heard some things recently about fasting being good for your body, but even if you can't bodily fast, to um, at least sort of uh, aesthetically fast, you know, in some sense, I think is really good for you, good for your soul. Yeah, I have a good friend who um, just stopped listening to music for all of Holy Week. Wow. Yeah, she that's, was like, good. I'm just, I, she's, I'm going to incorporate cool. silence. And so from Palm Sunday to the vigil, she, she didn't, she like didn't turn on music in her car or in her house and allowed that time to be more available to prayer and meditation. That's, that's, so, that's, cool. that's, yeah. that's really awesome. I was really impressed with her yeah yeah that's so, huge something i think about too in terms of really entering into whether it's the you know the grand celebration of of the um the triduum again i'm going to use the capital t triduum mm-hmm. versus the lowercase t that is every single week is mm-hmm. is that sense of a community mm-hmm. um and i think mm-hmm. that we uh we you know are often in so many different directions at least I know as a young adult, that's certainly the case for a lot of us. I think my parents have kind of settled into their parish. They have, mm-hmm. you know, they have events every week. They have a sense of community. But, uh, you know, young adult, and even in this, you know, uh, 21st century international economy, I mean, young adults are moving from city to city, uh, moving from different parts of the city to other parts of the city. You know, there mm-hmm. it's difficult to develop a long-term sense of community with with other young adults, and, and it's kind of some of, some of that's just natural. Um, I mean, you know, it is it is meant to be a temporary phase where eventually you enter into a vocation for most people. You know, becoming a priest or entering into the married life. Um, you know, but at the same time, I think having that sense of communal intimacy to to encourage each other and and to 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 build each other up in the faith um, can bring that into consciousness in a way that we uh, just don't have right now because everything mm-hmm. is so secular. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, we're not going to be reminded of the truths of our faith if, you know, we are not immersed in people who are talking about it mm-hmm. and, and, you know, these visible images, you know, that, that are around us. And really a lot of times they're only in the church now. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Like you can walk down the street and and you might see an Easter bunny, but you you probably won't hear too much about the the the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Excellent, excellent point. And that's I think why I like talking about liturgy so much on the show. It's because like liturgy isn't just it doesn't just belong to mass. It's like how do we live a liturgical life? How do we throughout the course of our year? really enter into the liturgy in a way that, like, walks with Christ, walks with Christ, through the life of Christ each year. Um, and I think, Fionn, you, to your point, like, we we need more of that community celebration and observation of what is taking place liturgically to really bring us together more and encourage us in our faith. Because it's not meant to be lived you know, it's, it's re- we're really meant to to live in community. Um, yeah, absolutely true. Because uh, human beings are social animals, right? 
So how do you uh, how do you flourish best as a social animal? Social media. <laughs> Wrong. But wait, wait, isn't that where everybody is all the time? <laughs> but yeah, no, that's a good point. So yeah, um, in response to your question, uh, yeah, I do have a favorite memory from my childhood about Easter. Thanks for asking. <laughs> Only kidding. <laughs> you make a great host. <laughs> so when I was uh, about eight, we were getting ready to go to Brazil, and the um, the missions, and we lived in an old ramshackle house in uh, downtown Jackson, which was an uh, an old feeder town for Detroit. It used to be industrial before everything kind of died in the 80s. But anyway, um, there's five of us. And uh, my oldest sister was about 13 at the time, but the youngest sister was two. And she was everybody's little darling. You know, we all loved little Robin. And uh, she had big brown eyes, looked like a little Indian. And um, so uh, my mom got her a beautiful little frilly yellow dress to wear on, on Easter Sunday. Oh. And so she got her in her dress, and the rest of us were running around um trying to find things screaming at each other um trying to get into the bathroom um trying to think i think we had one and a half baths to for seven of us and so it was the usual chaos um and so we finally got about ready ran downstairs where's robin robin sitting on the kitchen table eating butter with a spoon <laughs> Oh, it was great. <laughs> How was her dress? I think her dress was kind of buttery, but I believe it was okay <laughs> because it was a, a yellow dress, Aww. and so I think it wasn't too obvious. Hmm. She used to come into my grandma's house and uh, granny's house and say, chunk of butter, chunk of butter. She loved to have a little, butter. <laughs> little butter ball. Yeah. <laughs> Cute. So, Gian... Um, uh, you're a psychotherapist. <laughs> I know that uh, you have some experience with working with people with addiction, so I thought I would like to ask you a few questions about addiction if you're up for that. Sure thing. And um, uh, I don't know why I'm taking over, Deb. You should ask the questions. Is there anything you'd like to ask about addiction? Well, Gian, you want to just tell us, like, first, what is addiction? Like, how 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 can we spot addiction? Those are two questions, sorry. All right. So um, I think let's start with what addiction is. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's helpful to think about addiction as a compulsive behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, so what is a, a, a compulsion or a compulsive behavior? Um, it is a, a, a thought or a feeling um, that uh, produces um, an action or an action is taken because of the experience of that thought or feeling um, to uh, basically um, relieve some kind of distress or suffering. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that compulsive behavior, in this case addiction, 
you know, that, that can be gambling, that can be drugs, that can be alcohol, that can be pornography. Mm -hmm. um, they can be social media. It can be technology, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> or technology, absolutely. But the point is there, it is it is a coping skill. Mm -hmm. You know, it is used mm -hmm. with some kind of discomfort um, that the person is experiencing. Um, and then through, uh, you know, various factors such as um, early exposure, such as uh, availability, mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, other things like genetic predispositions, um, it, and I would also say the outcome, like whatever the feeling is associated with that behavior, whether it's like a very, very good feeling, the dopamine, you know, sure, like that, that sure. has a, sorry, I'm Yeah, no, but, it's okay. The, the, yeah, I mean, there's a reason drugs and alcohol and pornography, which are the ones I'm most familiar with, mm -hmm. are, you know, so enticing. You know, mm -hmm. they produce an incredible amount of euphoria mm -hmm. for the person. Um, you know, I know people who, who say that, you know, they've tried heroin and they, their life is never the same. Their life was never the same after that. They were like, this is, this is in fact what I would like to do with my life. This is how awesome mm -hmm, it feels. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think, you know, it's important to give due um, reverence and respect mm -hmm. for the experiences that people have had. I think it's really easy to throw, especially drug and alcohol addicts, into kind of a stigmatized box mm -hmm. um, and, 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 and sort of otherize them. Um, but uh, at the same time, you know, I think that no one's life is untouched by addiction. Um, you know, I, I don't meet anyone who, mm -hmm. who does not at least know somebody who has not had an addiction. Specifically, we'll talk about drugs and alcohol for now. But it, pornography is becoming increasingly an issue for those who, who consider it an addiction, which is not everyone. Um, but um, so I think that that's the kind of lens that, that you know, addiction as a coping skill. Mm -hmm. um, right. We know that it is a, it is harmful. Um, we know that it hurts the, the user. We know that it tears lives apart. Mm -hmm. you, know, you can overdose. Um, you can start, uh, you know, not taking care of your own, you know, needs in terms of food or shelter or, uh, or health, mm -hmm. um, cleanliness, things like that. Um, it can, you know, take over someone's life so much so to work. that, oh, huge. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Just People, as far as reliability uh, and responsibility. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, you know, yeah. Yeah, things like arriving late, uh, mm -hmm. not showing up, uh, no call, no show, showing up under mm -hmm. the influence. Yep. You know, all these things happen so that it really becomes, you know, the centerpiece of a person's life in, in mm -hmm. a lot of ways, becomes their God. Um, so, and at the same time, you know, as, as Christians, we also know that, you know, using drugs, using pornography, using alcohol to excess is also sinful. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, it's kind of an interesting how to recognize that that behavior is sinful, but also at the same time, you know, having an addiction is not necessarily a sin. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there are a lot of things that contribute to a person having an addiction or developing an addiction that may not be their fault. Um, and it's going to be somewhat an individual basis, but I think it can be really helpful to, to understand that most people, if not all people, did not have a really an active, they did not play an active role in developing that addiction. That addiction was not a part of 
their plan. So could you speak more to that when you say not their fault? What would be some of those factors that could predispose someone to be seeking this kind of relief? Um, so, I mean, certainly there's trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, so a very high percentage of, of, of people who struggle with addiction also have a history of trauma. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of comorbidity. Um, uh, also availability. Availability mm-hmm. is huge. Okay. Um, you know, for people who grow up in, uh, in basically an inner city area mm-hmm. where drugs are at every corner. Right. Um, it is a very, very difficult thing to say no to. You know, you factor that in with um, a, a lack of, of father, fatherhood, you know, mm-hmm. father, father's presence in a lot of these neighborhoods. Protective father's presence. Um, and uh, you, you, you get kids who are basically kind of running around uh, in a lot of ways unsupervised mm-hmm. with a, not a lot of direction, not a lot of, of you know, um, taking charge fatherhood figures, mm-hmm. um, except those that are also people who are not that much older than them and, and, and you know, running the streets, basically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so you put that together and, you know, searching for that acceptance, for that, you know, especially I can talk about the, the, the masculine kind of leadership, if mm-hmm. you will, um, that is present most prominently for most kids and most families growing up in these areas in gangs and, and, you know, groups that get together to, to, to distribute drugs. Um, Their bond is really good. So, uh, so that being offered and, and even pressured and, uh, you know, so available is really, really difficult for somebody who's got a developing brain and, possibly a traumatic childhood to say no to. Mm-hmm. Um, I think of um, uh, my spiritual director, very wise and holy man, talking about his experiences with, with some of these kids. Um, and he's like, they've done more hard things in just dealing with life in their neighborhood by the age of, you know, by, by, the, by the time they're in seventh grade than I've done in my entire life. Mm-hmm. And that line really, really hit me. You mm-hmm. know, like, <laughs> it's, it's not really that easy. <laughs> so the pain and suffering. It's incredibly are, difficult, actually. Yeah, the pain and suffering um, that they're exposed to really creates a vulnerability. Good word. A vulnerability yeah. in their hearts and in their minds and in their lives that makes them more susceptible to a risk of addiction. And then they have, you're saying the accessibility is right there. Um, It's different. It's accessible um, in different ways in wealthy suburbs. Because in wealthy suburbs, the money's there to bring it out. And so they're willing to pay for it. Um, But, you know, I find that you know, working in the suburbs, it's, there's there's as much. There really there's as much as as far as alcohol and drug addiction because there's as much availability because there's money. And so I wonder and, if you could express that as a formula. Say again. I wonder if you could express that as a formula. Hmm. So you can, you come from a, an intact family uh, with supportive parents, opportunity. You don't have to do anything that's beyond your maturity level. But on the other hand, it's so easily available to you, right? Well, and, and the thing is, there aren't, I don't know, there may be, 
more intact families, but just because they're intact doesn't mean they're functional. Good point. And I think that's really important to note. So I was going to ask you another question. Maybe this ties in. Um, how does the whole father thing actually work? Like, I feel that it is true, but why is it that kids growing up with a just a mother um, would be more vulnerable? What's the mechanism for that? Well, Pete, Kian, and, and my uh, boss, Dr. Peter Kloponis, mm-hmm. likes to say that there are three things that men that are part of being a man, being a leader, a provider, and a protector. And when dad's not there, mom has to do, she's, there's, no, there's no leader. Mom's trying to figure out how to provide. She's like trying to, she's working, she's trying to do, you know, like just sur- survival. We're talking survival. And then protection-wise, she's limited. She's really mm-hmm. limited what, as far as what she can do protection-wise. Right. Um, and so those, those are, are, are severely lacking. And then if there's not a strong, sometimes an extended family can make up for that lack. You know, if there's an, an active grandfather or uncles um, who can kind of step in and be that, uh, be that fatherly guide. So what about an, an intact but dysfunctional family? What do you think? What do you think, Jim? Well, uh, it depends on the the nature of the dysfunction. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I, I mean, certainly all sorts of things go on behind closed doors um Mm -hmm. and i mean the way i think about it um is uh, you know it starts with the marriage it starts with the the Mm -hmm. relationship between the 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 husband and wife you know if it is a at this point what was so-called traditional family um and you know is there a level of of devotion is there a level of warmth you know i mean i don't think we can divorce this from faith either um, in terms of, you know, the prioritization of uh, one's relationship with God um, mm-hmm. and and what that looks like in the pursuit of, 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 of the good, true, and the beautiful. Um, and, and so starting with that um, is really, you know, the first step to a, a good marriage. Um, and, and so, you know, it, it, it does have to have kind of two, yes, wounded, but, uh, you know, also, two, in some sense, complete individuals who are coming together, um, and and have a sense of, um, you know, do do they understand what marriage is? Um, do do they understand what is their understanding of marriage? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, how how do they see it? Um, and and do they see it as something that you know is uh, meant to be uh, permanent and is meant to be serving of others, outward looking? Um, and, and so all of that mindset, I think, goes into, you know, whether uh, there's uh, basically uh, an adequate level of health on each side, you know, on, for each spouse, spouse mm-hmm. just baseline psychological health, um, and also, you know, commitment, commitment to the marriage. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, talking about dysfunction, I mean, d- you know, divorce is dysfunction. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, the, the, the way that that hurts 
children is is profound. Mm-hmm. It's profound. It's 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 somewhat amazing to me how normalized divorce is actually, um, considering how we know <laughs> that it actually affects children. Um, and so you know, divorce. Did you say globalized? How globalized it is? How common normal, it is? Normalized. Oh, normalized. I see. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so that's just one example. I mean, I could I could go on, but you know, you know, the, the two parents having a good relationship, you know, two parents being present, you know, there's already dysfunction if that's not the case. If if that is the case, you know, there's 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 many you know distant fathers out there. Um, there are many abusive fathers out there. There are many um, there are many women who um, you know who struggle to engage emotionally with their children. Um, and there are, are many women who struggle to um, maintain a sense of, of stability and, and kind of emotional stability in their household. Um, so all of these things have various different effects on, on children growing up. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I don't know if I could just, I feel like I could talk about this for like an hour. So and like, and just, think, just yeah. saying those things, so many, so many cases come to mind of people that I've worked with where there's, you know, a, a dominant and um, an unstable mother and the father, instead of kind of being a stabilizing factor for her, just panders to trying to, you know, mm-hmm. like doesn't want to mm-hmm. kind of rock the boat. So mm-hmm. we'll just go with whatever mom does. Mm-hmm. Um, then there's, you know, the domineering father is thinking of another one, you know, like extremely domineering father um, and husband and children who are just nervous, nervous wrecks, right. significant anxiety issues mm-hmm. um, that manifest in, in all sorts of uh, disorders. Um, so, yeah, there are just so many different ways that dysfunction looks so, in, in, even in an intact home. Right, right. So, so here uh, I am, I have various weaknesses or, uh, you know, um, problems from my childhood. And so someone offers me um, um, booze, right? I get started drinking and I'm okay, but then I drink a little more, drink a little more, and then I find that I can't stop, right? So does there have to be that aspect? You said it's compulsive. Do you have to have tried to quit or could it possibly be that some people have never actually thought to try, but they are addicted to whatever it is. What do you um, think? I, I'm not sure if I understand your question. You said, are you asking if someone can be addicted to something specifically without having tried it? Without having, without tried, having tried quitting. Without having tried to quit. Um, well, the first question that comes to mind is, by whose standard? By whose standard? You know, are we talking about the people in their life, the people that that well, hopefully, hopefully love them and care about them, mm-hmm. or are we talking about themselves? And I think that um, kind of the 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 classic line is, you know, I can stop whenever I want. I can mm-hmm. stop whenever I want. All right. Um, so you know, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that that line kind of provokes the thought that that person probably hasn't tried. Mm-hmm. They probably haven't tried. Um, you know, but by by that by that maybe even, they've thought of it. Thought of trying. Maybe they thought of that because that statement does actually say that there's maybe a thought of it, but it's dismissed for whatever fear, whatever reason. 
Just, yeah, sure. You know, just, I, definitely. just pointing that out. <laughs> no, I, I agree. I, yeah. I agree. It's, it's obviously on their radar, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, maybe it's because of their own self-awareness or maybe it's something, you know, a, a loved one brought to their attention. Um, or maybe they uh, can't keep a job or maybe, you know, there's there are other external factors that are kind of showing them somewhere that something's not working. Sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I had a client uh, a few years ago, a girl who was, uh, I think at the time, about 16, you know, sort of middle, late teenage years, and uh, very keen on being fit. Um, How keen? Well, quite keen because she, um, when she wasn't losing weight fast enough by cutting out the carbs, she she fasted, actually, speaking of fasting, and dropped weight off quite quickly, quite radically. How old was she? She was about 16, I think, something like that. So go to the doctor. One doctor, pediatrician, says, you're too thin. You need to start eating again. Mm. Uh, eat healthy, whatever. Mm. Go to the psychiatrist, and the psychiatrist says, "Now nah, you're within the range, so your BMI is okay. Mm. Um, meanwhile, you know, a a very, um, how, how can I describe it, an exercise regime that is, you know, quite intense. Mm-hmm. Um, and then a sort of relapse the other direction. So not like mm-hmm. a but starting to eat stuff with the family and packing on the pounds again. And I think that was about Christmas time, if I remember right. So Christmas time, she puts on a bunch of weight because she's eating stuff again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, January, she's sick of it. She doesn't like that. So she goes the other way. Now she's fasting three days in a row, nothing to eat at all, drinking stuff but not eating anything. Mm-hmm. So... What do you think? Is that an addictive behavior or is that like a really single-minded teenager? Well, it's definitely not a healthy relationship with self. Mm-hmm. Um, it's extremely reactive. With the eating oh, Internal family systems, right? You're always talking about internal family systems. Internal family systems. <laughs> yes, but you didn't present any parts of her, Fred. Parts? I don't know. What are the parts? I have learned the parts. <laughs> um, you want me to talk about her mother? Sorry, I talked over you. Will you please, please go again. I keep talking over you, and I'm sorry. Bye. I apologize. We're making this work. Um, so uh, it does follow the binge fast pattern that is the characteristic of a certain type of, you know, profile of addict, if, mm-hmm. if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think it shares enough underlying mechanisms that it, it's at least similar. Um, it is food, um, which again does have enough in common with, um, with compulsive mm-hmm. behavior, with with addiction, um, to be, I think, at least tangentially related. Mm-hmm. Um, but when can you know, I would, uh, I would be hesitant to put them in the same category, um, just because uh, there are a lot of different effects, um, and you know, they're kind of the traditional categories that we have. 
of particularly the drugs and alcohol and the food. Right? We, we, right. Need food. we need food to stay alive. So, you know, like I like to tell clients, we don't need sex to stay alive. And we, we don't need sex to stay alive. We don't need drugs and we don't need alcohol to stay alive. Like at a certain point, the brain tells us it's like it's life or death, but it's, we don't actually need them. You know, we do need food. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, it's not the same category. So she wasn't uh, she wasn't addicted to eating per se. She was addicted to fasting. If anything, I'm not sure it counts, but that that would be my argument. She's so not addicted it, it, to food. There, there could be an addiction there as well, though, and and that could be kind of like a uh, a guilt, a guilt or 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 a self punishment. And I'm thinking of the inner critic. Um, you know, when we talk about IFS, we we all have this inner critic that's like telling us of things that we're not doing right or things that we're doing wrong. And it can be very helpful because we do things that are wrong and that need to be corrected. But it can sometimes go on hyperdrive. And with young women, especially if they're looking at their sense of worth and identity Mm -hmm. and getting that from social media, where everybody appears to have the quote unquote perfect body shape. And, you know, that's what, that's what defines attractiveness or one's value and if one doesn't measure up to that, you know, then there can be a lot of different messages the inner critic can, can you know, use to attack oneself. And, um, and then also, it, depending on the family life of this young woman, um, you know, what kind of messages is she getting? Often um, girls with eating disorders are getting messages from their mother that are not particularly helpful, even if they're intended to be. Mm-hmm. You know, like, mm-hmm. what, are you going to have that second dessert? Or, you know, like, just something that simple. Mm-hmm. That, and, the way, you know, and the way, especially developing mind can interpret something. Yeah. You know, maybe maybe there's maybe there's some, something off with the mm-hmm. mother as well, absolutely. Right. Maybe, maybe not. But mm-hmm. the way things are interpreted by a developing yeah. mind, often benign comments or seemingly benign comments yeah. can have they this, can get twisted. Uh, I don't want to say catastrophic, but a yeah. pretty serious emotional impact. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. So I have a question from a listener. How do you break the chain? You know, if that's a generational thing from father to son or mother to daughter, how do you break that? The chain of addiction particularly? Yes. Yes. Well, there are things like, you know, healing the family tree, mm-hmm. you know, um, you know, doing sort of prayers or deliverance prayers. Um, to to you know uh, find freedom from generational demonic activity, um, mass, which is a factor. There's a, a mask particularly for that as well. Um, I've had it said it's powerful. Yeah. Cool. Um, so you know there's the there's spiritual, spiritual aspect, dimension. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and then on the human level, I would say. Um, I mean, one person has the power to to break that chain, mm-hmm. um, and and you know, getting getting help, getting help is 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 a way that you can pursue the healing that that you need, mm-hmm. um, and and effectively you know reverse that that wounding and and not transmit that to you know your children. So I would say one person, yes, but they can't do it by themselves. Yeah, I, right? agree. I agree. You know, yeah. so one person yeah. can make all the difference. Yeah. But but the the lie behind addiction 
is that I'm in this by myself. But mm-hmm. I can't trust anybody to help me. Mm-hmm. That I'm not lovable and nobody even wants to help me or thinks I'm desirable. You know, that this, this addiction is the only way that I'm actually going to find comfort or peace in this life. And, um, yep. and, so, and so part of like part of that seeking help is recognizing that I can't do this alone. Isn't that true generally though about a lot of problems or I would even say probably most problems. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Dr. Uh, Jordan Peterson recently um, was talking about loneliness and how that's really the epidemic that we're dealing with now. And when you look at the DSM, like how many of those things really are the result of disconnection and loneliness mm-hmm. and broken relationships. So I have another question for you. Here's the, I, I will play the devil's advocate. You talk about addiction being harmful for people. It messes up their jobs, costs them money. It's bad for their health. Um, what else? A waste a bunch of money. Uh, but those things um, could be said are not true of using pornography, right? So how is pornography? In oh, life? no. They can be said for pornography, too. Okay. It depends on the severity of the addiction. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are many people, many men, at least that I work with, who are impacted, you know, in terms of their occupation, in terms of using using at work, um, you know, mm-hmm. using in public, risking being caught, risking, mm-hmm. risking being caught Arrested. by their job, spending mm-hmm. spending work time uh, on on pornography, um, staying up late at night, um, losing sleep. Um, so then you're talking pornography, like job taking, taking time away from their family, mm-hmm. you know, to view pornography. Um, and that's just the direct act, not necessarily how it impacts them in terms of, you know, mm-hmm. the shame and the guilt and the further isolation and the lack of presence that they have, you know, at, at their at their job, family. So mm-hmm. the thing to do, therefore, is uh, to, um, uh, to uh, normalize pornography use so people don't feel ashamed about it. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> it is in fact not what I'm saying. Um, <laughs> so uh I think there, that go on. there's probably some amount of 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 good that can come from normalizing pornography in in that, you know, people may feel like they don't have to hide it. They can talk about it. They can you can connect with one another. But I think overall, it's much more disastrous to normalize it because it it just it simply is not a benign activity. Um, you cannot you cannot disconnect it from the whole pornography industry mm-hmm. and and the amount of, of of abuse mm-hmm. and, and exploitation that occurs. Yep. In, in the pornography industry, you know, mm-hmm. the average lifespan of a porn star is 37 years. Wow. Many of them die, you know, from drug overdoses or Abuse. alcohol. Um, it's, it's, it's really serious. Botched abortions, um, many abortions. Yeah, it's bad. So, so there's a lot, you know, there. But even, even in terms of the person viewing the pornography, mm-hmm. um, you know, a lot of people think, you know, it's, it can add excitement to the bedroom. It can help my performance, things like that. You know, we know of a lot of, of, of the research that there's actually a connection with erectile dysfunction mm-hmm. and pornography. In young use. men, no less. Um, in young men, 
So, yeah, yeah it's, uh, you know, the idea that it doesn't actually have negative intrinsic or negative effects on a person and their life is, is just it's unsubstantiated. It's not, yeah, you can't, you can't see evidence for that. It doesn't have a negative effect on a person's psychology. Like, well, I, I, we know that it has a, a terrible effect on a person's soul, right? Mm-hmm. And it can affect a person's uh, marriage. But what about the psychology of the person? Do you think that that's, is there something there or is it mainly the other stuff? The first thing I think is that it really warps one's understanding of the person. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, kind of the classic being the male understanding of, of, of the female. Um, obviously there are, you know, it doesn't have to be that, but, um, you know, just the, the sheer objectification mm-hmm. um, that, that it, it encourages. Um I mean, men don't know how to interact with a woman in a way that is respectful, in a way that doesn't isn't pushy or demanding of of sex, Mm -hmm. you know, in a way that um, actually, you know, appreciates and actually even sees and and receives a certain even pleasure from from the beauty of of a woman. Um, So it really takes that away. um, And uh, it, it, it really doesn't allow a man to enter into a healthy relationship with a woman. Right. Uh, the, uh, the word selfishness came to mind. Creates a pathology of selfishness. So that it's not, you know, when we think about love, as JP2 talked about it, um, love is expressed as gift of self. And with, with pornography, there is no gift. There's no sacrifice. It's all about what can I get. And so, you know, if that's if that's the motive, like from the from the outset, it can't go it can't go a, a right direction. Mm-hmm. Good point. So, um, pornography is inherently harmful and become a real compulsion. Um, are you okay for a few minutes more, Gian? Or yes, he is. He's good okay. till eight. Okay. Just checking to make sure, because I want to give people a chance to talk to both of you guys, either of you, uh, personally, if that is of interest or of help. So uh, how do they get hold of you if they want to set up an appointment? Um, So what you can do is uh, you can visit our website, integritycounselingpa.com. Um, and, uh, you know, there's more information about who we are and, and what we offer um, and the therapists on staff here. Uh, our office number also is 610-601-9781. That is 610-601-9781. You can give us a call, um, you know, 8.30, between 8.30 a.m. and 4.30 p.m. Eastern time or when our office managers are in the office. Um, and, you know, anyone can call, anyone mm-hmm. can set up a free 15-minute consult that we offer to talk to one of our therapists on staff here. I know we have we have six wonderful ones. So they can reach either one of you guys out that number or on that website. Yes, Gian and I both work at the same practice. Awesome. Yeah. And what was yeah. the website again? It is integritycounselingpa.com. Is that right? I think so. It's I my cards right. are right there on the shelf. <laughs> Let's make sure that's right. <laughs> Let's make sure that's right. <laughs> So as uh, Gian was saying, you can have a free 15-minute consultation if you want to uh, bounce some ideas or just see if it might work for you. 
Mm-hmm. If you or anybody you know might be suffering from an addiction or any sort of problem, um, and the approach of a Catholic counselor, a, mm-hmm. a true Catholic counselor, is going to be um, profoundly different. Um, sometimes you might not be able to tell the difference, but mm-hmm. there are true. important ways in which it is profoundly different from a secular counselor. Can you tell us a little bit about Barnabas and uh what you do in Missouri? St. Barnabas is uh, St. Barnabas Reconciliation Ministries is the uh, nonprofit that I have set up here in Missouri to promote reconciliation between um, uh, family members, between denominations, and between all people and God. So, in other words, we all know uh, as Catholics, you know reconciliation as kind of what I think of as a euphemism for confession. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it is uh, it is descriptive, right? It is true that uh, confession is when you get right with God. Mm-hmm. So um, I think that is the most important thing is if we can help people um, get closer to God or mm-hmm. to get right with God in a variety of ways that we're working mm-hmm. on now. So how both, can they get a hold of you, Fred? They can get a hold of us by uh, calling 573 573- Six nine two four one two six. So that phone number is five seven three six nine two four one two six, and the website will be up soon. Oh, <laughs> um, good, good, good. Maybe. Uh, but St. Barnabas uh, co-produces this show, and but we are guests, really, of uh, the Four Persons Network, right? Um, which is something that has been developed by uh, John Benko. And I would like to uh, let you know that there are, are other really cool shows available to you. Uh, live tomorrow at 7 p.m. is Luke Haskell. I'm doing Catholic apologetics. In other words, the truth of the Catholic faith. Next day, Thursday, make sure and be here at 7 o'clock because the best show of all is coming on. Sorry for the laugh. Thank you for that, uh, you know, cynical laugh. Yeah. <laughs> It's my show, uh, theoretically, <laughs> technically. It's called Uncounseling, and we take kind of a skeptical view of counseling and psychotherapy in general as a profession and a practice. <laughs> then on Friday, we have Dustin Quick, a vlogger and Catholic convert with his story. Um, and April the 19th, make sure and catch this one. This is the famous Banco Sibanko show. You have to watch <laughs> Banco Sibanko. Seven o'clock. All these shows are at seven o'clock Eastern time um, on the uh, Four Persons Network. Gian has to head out, so uh, let's give him a, a thank you. Thank Absolutely. you, man. Really appreciate thank you. you joining us tonight. Thank you very much, Gian. It's so great to talk to you, and I would uh, I look forward to talking to you personally too to uh, catch up. That'd be great. That'd be great, Fred. Thank you guys so much for having me on. You're very welcome, and I hope that hope you get a lot of calls out of this. <laughs> Have a good night. Thank you. So, Thank Deb. You. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Is that yours? Okay. Yes. Would you like to yes, say Bully? prayer to close off? I would love to. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. <sighs> Lord, thank you for your life, death, and resurrection. And this very special Easter week, as we focus 
on the resurrection and the power that it contains in our lives, the power to restore hope, to bring healing, um, to resurrect hearts that are sore, tired, broken, in pain and suffering. So we thank you that we can enter into these conversations and this work of counseling, confident of your healing and the grace that you provide for that. Thank you for Fred and for John and for all those who make the show possible and for those who are listening especially, um, that they would continue to hope because there is the very best reason to do so. Mary, undoer of knots. Pray for us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Deb, and I will see you later. Talk to you later. All right. Blessings. Have a good night, Fred.